Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, our text this morning is John 9, verses 17 through 34. But for the sake of context, I'm going to begin reading at John 9, verse 1. John 9, verse 1. I do now invite you to hear and receive the holy, inspired, and supremely authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God. And this is his word. John 9. As he passed by, Jesus, that is, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some others said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called, his parents of the, uh, called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked, and asked them, is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, well, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began, began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for sending your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world to open the eyes of the blind. Lord, we confess that we were once blind, but by your grace we now see. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses just as this man born blind was, to the fact that Jesus is from God, he is God in the flesh, and he has the power, the authority, and the ability to open blind man's eyes. Lord, if there are any in our midst who are blind, we intercede on their behalf now. Any hearing my voice who know you not, we intercede on their behalf now and ask that you today in the hearing of your word would open their eyes that they might for the very first time behold the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your time, and as we sing, we want you to be exalted. We want to see Christ. Help us to do that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, before we get to John 9, Jesus has already said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We just read in John 9, verse 5, where Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And as many of you know, light is necessary for vision. We could put it this way. If there is no light, then there is no sight. To be able to see anything, the eye must first process light. If your eye is properly functioning, one begins to see when light passes through the cornea, the exterior lens, and then to the lens of the eye and the inside of the eye, which produces a clear image on the retina. That's how the eye functions. In our passage, there are many people who have properly functioning eyes. They walk around, they see things, their eyes process light, yet they are unable to see the light. In other words, they physically see Jesus, but they do not spiritually see Jesus. And in the midst of all these people with func properly functioning eyes, there is a man who could not see physically from birth. Yet Jesus heals this man, he heals his physical malady, and then he goes on to give him spiritual sight. 
as we've worked our way up to this point in the book of John, we've become accustomed to the fact that the Lord often and ironically uses lowly men to shame proud men. And this is the case in our text this morning. The old saying goes, seeing is believing. But this saying could not be further from the truth in our text. Why? Why is that saying false? It's because this. There is a blindness that goes beyond eyesight. There's a blindness that goes beyond eyesight. Thus, I have entitled this sermon, Blindness Beyond Eyesight. Beloved, we are born into this world spiritually blind. And make no mistake about it, this is the worst kind of blindness that there is. This is the blindness that goes beyond eyesight. And the fact of the matter is this, as we've already seen in John 3, you must be born again. That is, you must be born from above in order to receive spiritual sight and to behold Jesus, who is the light of the world. This brings us to the main idea of our passage. And the main idea of our passage is that in John chapter 9, verses 17 through 34, we see John emphasizing the contrast between spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. And he does so through the exchanges of the blind man, the blind man's parents, and the Jews. Now, as we work our way through this passage, I want you to play, pay close attention to the actions of the people in our text. We're going to have the blind man, as I said, we're going to have his parents, and we're going to have the Jews. And notice that the blind man simply bears witness concerning the truth. He simply speaks truth. That's what he does in our text. Notice that the blind man's parents are unwilling to bear witness concerning the truth. And notice that the Jews in our text, they doubt the truth, and they speak contrary to the truth. First, we'll see the blind man and we'll see his sprouting faith in verse 17. And then we're going to see the blind man's parents and specifically his exchange with the Jewish leadership. And we're going to see there a fear of man. Then we'll see the blind man and his exchange with the Jews. And we're going to see that the blind man is a relentless witness. And lastly, we're going to conclude with the Jews where we see really the culmination of all that they've been saying there is a cold pride in the heart of the Jewish leadership in our text, and we'll see that in verse 34. Let us begin first with the blind man in verse 17 in what I call a sprouting faith. Verse 17 says, So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. As we read, verse 16 really ends with there being a division amongst the Pharisees. Some accuse Jesus of not keeping the Sabbath. Why? Because he did a good deed on the Sabbath. He healed a blind man on the Sabbath and said, hey, this guy can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others are seemingly unable to, to come to that same conclusion. And they say, well, how can a sinner do such signs as this Jesus? And so the division among the Pharisees is what prompts them to ask the blind man this question. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And it seems as if the Pharisees express, expect this blind man to, 
to play judge, to play arbiter as they have this disagreement. He, they, they want him to resolve the dispute with a question that specifically forces the blind man to choose a side. Is this blind man going to give glory to Christ? Is he going to speak the truth at the expense of his own comfort? Or is he going to plead the fifth? Is he going to play dumb in order to remain comfortable? And this blind man isn't the first person nor the last person who has to answer that question. Brothers and sisters, this is a question that you and I must answer on a regular basis. Well, the blind man simply says, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. And that statement would make him clearly side with Jesus. He's not going to play dumb. He's not going to plead the fifth. He says that Jesus is a prophet. And this is a true statement. We know that Jesus is not merely a prophet, but Jesus is indeed a prophet. And I say that the blind man's answer depicts a sprouting faith for two reasons. The first is this. Notice the progression of the man's statements about Jesus in John chapter 9. Remember back in verse 11, he says what? The man called Jesus. Apparently at that point, he's just a guy, a man, perhaps a mere man. But in verse 17, the blind man makes a step in the right direction. He says, he's not just any man, he's a prophet. He's acknowledging that Jesus is one who speaks on behalf of God. And finally, in the text that we'll look at next week, after Jesus reveals who he is, look at what the blind man says in verse 38. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He calls Jesus Lord, giving him respect, and he expresses his belief in worship. I believe that he is coming along, and this is one of the reasons why I call this a sprouting faith. The blind man receives and expresses truth about Jesus throughout the whole chap chapter, and it seems that in our verse, he may enter into what we might call spiritual infancy. He doesn't get the whole picture yet, but by the grace of Christ, his faith seems to have sprouted, and it will indeed continue to grow. But there's another reason that I call this sprouting faith. That's because in the Gospel of John, we see this idea of progressive belief all over the place. Many scholars have noted that John really emphasizes a progressive belief that it's not just like, boom, we believe in Jesus, but people hold on to some facts about Jesus and they grow and they understand and we see this really happening with the disciples themselves, maybe most emphatically. Nevertheless, you have people in John's gospel that say that they believe in Jesus and they seemingly do but not all of them come to the necessary conclusion about Jesus. And so for John and his gospel, the progression of faith must culminate in unwavering allegiance to, to Jesus or it is not saving faith. And that's what we see going on with the blind man here. We remember back in John chapter two that some believe Jesus because of his signs, but Jesus knows that their hearts are not truly his. Then we saw in John chapter six, some believe in Jesus because what? He provides for their material needs. But when Jesus says hard truths, they depart from him. We saw in John chapter eight that some believe in Jesus, yet their lives say otherwise. 
And Jesus says they're really children of the devil. True belief in Jesus, beloved, however small it may be at first, always results in acknowledging Jesus as Lord, which is expressed in worship regardless of the cost. That's exactly what takes, with this, takes place with this blind man. This brings us to the blind man's parents. We see in verses 18 through 23, the blind man's parents, their exchange with the Jews. And what we really see is the fear of man. Look again with me, beginning in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he's born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews has already, had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now in verse 18, we have John transitioning. Up to this point, he has explicitly said the Pharisees, the Pharisees, but now he transitions from the Pharisees and he employs the term the Jews. And in this context, it seems that the Jews were somehow a broader group that is linked to the Jewish leadership of the day, which would have included the Pharisees. And it says in verse 18 that the, that the Jews called, that the Jews called the blind man's parents. This term would really imply this idea of being legally summoned or being subpoenaed. They're not just trying to figure out the truth. They have an intent that if they don't answer correctly, that they would be punished. And so they call and the blind man's parents come and I think it's good for us just for a moment to try to put ourselves in the blind man's parent situation. When the authorities arrive at your door with a subpoena for you to be interrogated, you might be a little anxious. You might be a little nervous. Maybe your first thought is, what did I do wrong? We've all been in those situations, whether it's a principal or the authorities or whoever it might be, we've all been in a situation where someone had some measure of authority over us and they say, hey, I wanna talk with you. And you think, oh, <laughs> what in the world did I do? Start racking your brain over the last week or the last month. Is there anything that I could have done that would have offended them? So we understand that this is a tense situation for the blind man's parents. And the Pharisees really are asking two questions. One, is this your son? Two, how can he see? They seem like simple, innocent questions, but they're loaded questions. The first question, they answer affirmatively. Yes, this is our son. The second question, however, they seem to run far away from. We do not know how he sees. We do not know who opened his eyes. As a matter of fact, our son is a grown man. As a matter of fact, our son is a cognizant man. As a matter of fact, you can ask him these questions. I don't think we need to answer. 
And I don't want to take this too far. We cannot fill in all the historical details, but I am willing to bet that their son told them some version of his story. As a matter of fact, it's verse 22 that really helps us and gives us insight as to why the blind man's parents would be unwilling to say anything more than they did. John inserts for us, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Well, why were they afraid of the Jews? For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Let us remember where we are in the Gospel of John. Chapter 7 through 12 of, the, of John's Gospel really catalogs for us this increasing opposition from the Jews toward Jesus. And here this verse, chapter 9, verse 22, highlights that we are in the center of that growing disdain toward Jesus. Yet in the midst of such opposition, Jesus is working wondrously in this blind man. This should have us take heart, brothers and sisters. This should encourage our souls. It reminds us that the increasing opposition against Jesus and those who follow him is not insurmountable. Rather, the opposition is ultimately the means by which Jesus would go to the cross to bear the sin of the elect and be raised from the grave in order to do what? In order to bring many sons to glory. Beloved, God is always in control. He was in control then and he is in control now. Nevertheless, the blind man's parents didn't know that. And they were unwilling to speak freely concerning their son's newly gained sight. Why were the parents hesitant to offer their opinions about their son's cure or about the healer? It's simply this. The Jewish authorities have already decided that Jesus was not the Christ. Their mind is already made up. It doesn't matter what Jesus do, does. It doesn't matter what Jesus says. Their mind is made up. Therefore, if anyone held to and expressed that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, then they would be thrown out of the synagogue. To be thrown out of the synagogue was a big deal. I think we can just kind of read over that and say, okay, so what? If you get kicked out of Redeemed South Bay, we'll just go to the church across the street. It's not how it was. Think of it. Public shame, loss of friends and family, loss of community and religious activities. Think of it this way. Think if you grew up in a city where almost everyone knew you. We're not talking Los Angeles here where there's 10 million people and you know very few people, but a smaller city where your family was well known. As a matter of fact, they had been there for centuries. Many generations have been faithful to the synagogue there was one public place of worship rather than many. And then if you said this one thing about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, you would be ripped from everything that you had identified with. Everyone whom you had identified with. This is the pressure that his parents are facing. And so rather than speaking the truth, it's far easier to say, ask someone else. It is easier to shift the pressure from yourself to someone else. And so they simply say, he is of age, ask him. And I'm well aware of the fact that John's primary purpose of this story is not to tell us about the spiritual state of the blind man's parents. But I would be remiss not to pause here and to acknowledge that these are the decisions that you and I make each and every day, saints. 
blind man's parents were crippled by a fear of man such that they passed the buck to their own son. Really, the question is, do you fear the Jews or do you fear God? Or maybe more specifically for our context, the question is, do you fear man or do you fear God? Do you fear your boss or do you fear God? Do you fear your non-believing friends or do you fear God? Do you fear your neighbors or do you fear God? Brothers and sisters, for hundreds of years in our great nation, saying the name of Jesus and proclaiming biblical truth was the norm. And then maybe time went on, in the middle of the 20th century perhaps, there's this transition. When perhaps such things weren't the norm, but if you did proclaim Christ in his word, it certainly wouldn't cost you anything. And here we are today, now, consistently proclaiming Christ and his word will cost you something. As a matter of fact, you don't even need to proclaim Christ in his word necessarily if you just believe it and abide by it in your day-to-day -day life. It will cost you something. It may cost you your job. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you popularity. So the question for us is will you be like the blind man's parents? Will you fear man to the extent that you choose to compromise the truth about Jesus and his gospel? Or will you be like the blind man whose growing faith in Jesus enables him to speak the truth no matter what the cost? And I say these things not to strike fear in anyone, but it's good and wise for us to think about these things and pray about these things here in the now because brothers and sisters, if they haven't already come yet, they're coming. These are the decisions that you're gonna have to make. And so we wanna cry out to God, God, would you grant us wisdom and gentleness to speak the truth regardless of the cost? And be encouraged, saints, because there's a long line of faithful men and women who have done that and they're in glory now. It's one of the things I love about teaching this church history class that we've been teaching. You just see this long line of faithful men and women and then you think to yourself, maybe I should just trust God and not freak out about what I see on the news all the time. Maybe I should just stand firm on the word of God because it's all over the place in scripture and it's all over the place in church history. Would God help us to do just that? Well, this does bring us to the blind man, and he does do just that. He is a relentless witness. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They ask him to give glory to God, which, by the way, ironically, he does give glory to God. But that's not what they mean. This phrase was a common formula used to try to get, to try to get the accused to offer a confession of their guilt. That's what's going on here. It would sometimes even be used as a demand for a confession 
from someone who did wrong and a call to repentance. And perhaps we, most, we see this most famously in Joshua 7, 19. We understand that Achan, he took some stuff, he was hiding out, and uh, they're like, hey, someone fess up. And it dwindles down, dwindles down, dwindles down to Achan and his family. And so Joshua said to Achan in Joshua 7:19, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. It's used in that same sense here. Give glory to God and tell us what you did wrong. They say, we know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. How do they know? How do they know? We need to be aware of people who make truth claims, but they're unable to substantiate those claims. How do they know? They don't know is the fact. Nevertheless, this is the official ruling of the Jewish authorities. They have heard the testimony from the blind man and they have heard the testimony from his parents, yet their ruling is that Jesus is a sinner. Well, how do they come to that ruling with the testimony that they've heard? They don't care about the testimony that they've heard. Their mind is already made up before anyone's testimony is given. And so the blind man says, look, I just met the guy. I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I know this, I can see. That's something new. In other words, he's saying, look, I'll let you theological experts, you religious gurus, deal with the issue if he's a sinner or not. But I know this, I was blind as blind could be, and now I can see. And this is a surprising response. Why is it surprising? Well, in that context, it directly countered the official ruling of the Jewish authorities. They say, look, he's a sinner. He says, I don't know about this. I can see now. And it seems as if he's not going to back down. And as we continue to work our way through the text, he doesn't back down. He refuses to submit to the demand placed upon him. He's fine leaving the question of Jesus being a sinner or not to the Pharisees, but he is unwilling to relinquish his personal testimony regarding his encounter with Christ. I love what D.A. Carson says of this verse. He says, and I quote, granted the importance of the witness theme of John's gospel, John may also be telling his readers, you and I, that decisive faith is characterized by the testimony of personal witness. Certainly countless Christians throughout the ages have applied the same words to their own transformation, their own experience of the move from darkness to light. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see, end quote. Well, the religious authorities don't really like what the blind man has to say, and so they continue in verses 26 and 27. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also? I love this. Seems like we have a little sarcasm. Seems like we have a little comedy. Seems like the blind man himself is fed up and he is astonished at the folly of those who are interrogating him. It seems that the Pharisees ask him to retell his story for one of two reasons. First, it could be this. They may have been trying to find some sort of inconsistency in his story such that they can say, look, he is a faulty witness. Or the second reason might have been they were simply surprised by the blind man's confidence. 
The blind man truly is a relentless witness. He knows the truth. He holds on to the truth. And so therefore he speaks the truth. And listen, this is the way it works for each and every one of us. Knowing the truth, holding on to the truth should result in confidently speaking the truth. Sometimes you can know the truth and not hold on to it, but if you know it and you hold on to it, it does bring about this confidence. Not an arrogance, but a confidence in the truth, especially God's truth. This blind man is not swayed by social pressure. He's not swayed by political pressure. He's not swayed by any pressure outside. Rather, he is persuaded and swayed by the word of God, by the truth of God, which is bubbling up from the inside, it would seem. Would that be the case for each and every one of us? The blind man says, I've told you, you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear again? And I like what Edward Clink, he insightfully says of this blind man's rebuke, by implication, their ears might need to be restored to hear God's word, just as his sight needed to be restored to see God's world. He has already explained the what and the how. What he wants to know from them is why they continue to press him. And then the blind man hilariously says, do you also want to become his disciples? Do you also want to become his disciples? And obviously we understand that the Jews are going to answer negatively, no, that's the last thing that they want. But we must not overlook the implication of the blind, man, the blind man's question. Notice what he says. He says, do you also, also want to become his disciples? disciple, which seems to suggest that the blind man views himself as a disciple of Jesus, at least to some extent, and at least in some sense up to this point. Well, they're going to answer that question in verse 28 and 29. It says, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They revile him. That's their response. Reviling being, speaking abusively to the blind man. They're probably talking about his social status. They're probably hurling insults at him. And they claim that they are true disciples of Moses, but that they do not know where Jesus come, comes from. And that statement should ring a bell in our ear. And it should remind us of at least three themes that we have already seen in the gospel of John. First, if they were true disciples of Moses, then what? They would be disciples of Jesus. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 5. He says in John 5:45, Jesus speaking here, "Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me." Secondly, we should be reminded that although they claim that God has spoken to Moses and they are implying that God has not spoken to Jesus. We, we are cast back to the prologue of John. Look at what John says in chapter one, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now listen to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. They claim that God has spoken to Moses, but we're already told earlier in the gospel that yes, God speaks to Moses and to and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we see, they claim that they do not know where Jesus came from. This is hilarious to me for a couple reasons, which I'll tell you now. First is this, Jesus has repeatedly told us and John has repeatedly told us where Jesus comes from. We remember back in John chapter one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John starts his gospel out telling us that the Word was before time began with God, and he would become the Word incarnate. He emphasizes that in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. But remember what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 23. Jesus says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In other places in John's gospel as well, over and over the idea is that Jesus is from above, Jesus is from above, Jesus is from above. And so he's made that plain to them. But why I find it so funny is that ironically, there are other times where people, where people discredit Jesus as being the Messiah, why? on the basis of knowing where he came from. They say, hey, you know what? We don't know where the Messiah is gonna come from, but we know where this man came from. We see that in John chapter seven, verse 27. And so there's irony all over the place and we begin to really see the heart of the Jewish authorities. They don't care about truth. They don't care about consistency. What they care about is getting rid of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews in our text are only concerned about their truth, to borrow a term from contemporary vernacular. They claim to know many things of God, but they are ignorant concerning the things of God. And after being reviled, the blind man is going to go on his longest speech in John chapter 9. Look what he says in verses 30 through 33. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Ironically, the blind beggar becomes the teacher of the teachers. Since the Jews admitted their ignorance of Jesus' origin, the blind man takes them to school. And the blind man is astonished, absolutely astonished by the unbelief of the authorities. To him, it's plain as day. Look, you know what? I've been blind my entire life. And Jesus healed me. And you guys are really digging this deep? Like, can't you just put two and two together? It's pretty simple is what's going on in his mind. His astonishment causes them to say, well, this is an amazing thing. Perhaps my favorite line out of this text. That's the absurdity. The absurdity of what we see. You don't know where he comes from, and yet 
he opened my eyes. So we're going to have the blind man, and he's going to reason theologically. And he does so saying God doesn't listen to people who characteristically sin, but he does listen to those who fear him and obey him. And the blind man testifies to the uniqueness of his healing and concludes, hmm, this guy must be from God. The specifics of the blind man's argument are rather simple. Dia Carson notes, his congenital blindness has been healed and the God who performed the healing does not answer the prayer of sinners. The conclusion is obvious. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And really what I want us to take from this is the fact that the blind man is simply a faithful, relentless witness. That's what he is. He speaks truthfully about what he knows in the midst of people who speak falsely about what they think they know. The blind man was not a religious elitist. He wasn't. Rather, he speaks the truth to the religious elite. He's a simple man who spoke plainly about his encounter with Jesus. Let me emphasize that. He is a simple man who spoke plainly about his encounter with Jesus. It's that simple. Why is this encouraging to us? Well, because you may not have the theological acumen to answer all of the questions that skeptics bring up to you. But if you've encountered Jesus, you have more than enough to speak the truth, to speak plainly, to be a faithful, relentless witness to the things that you know. There's no such thing as believing in Jesus, knowing Jesus, being born again, and not having enough to say. You have to know the gospel to be saved. And if you're saved, you know the gospel. And you have your personal testimony. Brothers and sisters, the point that I'm trying to make here is simply be faithful to share the gospel and to tell of God's amazing grace in your life and you don't know what the results are gonna be. Open your mouths to speak truthfully about what you know about Jesus. Finally, this brings us to our last verse, the Jews, and what I say reveals a cold pride. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. I wish that there was an extra verse here such that when they said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us, the blind man said, yes, I was and yes, I would. Or the blind man said, you were too and I just did. Because that's what he did. Yeah, yeah, I am gonna teach you and yes, I am born in utter sin, such is the case of each and every one of us after the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They declare that the blind man's entire person is unclean. And now Jesus' statement in verses three through five, make more sense to us. Remember what he says in nine, three through five. They ask, hey, why is this man blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus' answer is really illuminated by what we just read. Jesus answered in verse three, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am 
the light of the world. Edward Klink says on this verse, God is not a mere solution to the things of this world. He is also creation's very source. Nevertheless, the Jewish authorities cast him out, presumably out of the synagogue. And this really does show the cold pride of the Jewish leadership. The blind man did what? He upstaged the Jewish authorities and then they wickedly exercised their authority to excommunicate him from the synagogue, declaring him to be a social and religious outcast, a heretic and one who deserves shame and exclusion. But in reality, this action shows that the blindness beyond sight is real and it's innate in each and every one of us. And the Jews are indeed, in our text, spiritually blind. Brothers and sisters, the blind man's sight was physically restored. We saw that in the first portion of this passage. But it's his alignment with Jesus that reveals that his spiritual sight has been granted by God. Next week, we'll study the culmination of his spiritual sight. But the takeaway for us today is this. All who have spiritually seen Jesus, all who have spiritually seen Jesus align themselves with him in such a way that it is expressed through faithfulness to him, regardless of the cost. If you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, the natural, or rather, shall we say, supernatural expression of that is faithfulness to him, regardless of the cost. As the apostles say in Acts chapter 5, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So have you seen Jesus, friends? Have you seen Jesus? Do you know that he was in the beginning with God and was God? Do you know that he became flesh and dwelt among us? Do you know that he is the one who is full of grace and truth? Do you know that he lived a sinless life so that he could pay the penalty for your sin by dying on a cross while simultaneously upholding the righteousness of God? Do you know that he was buried and that he rose on the third day, proving that he has the power and the authority to grant everlasting life to those who believe on him? Do you know that he ascended into heaven and even now is seated at the right hand of the Father? And do you know that he will come again to judge the living and the dead? Oh, if you don't hold on to these truths, I beg you and I plead, look to Jesus. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And if you do not adhere to his teaching and his person, then you are blind as blind can be. Yet there's hope. There's hope for you if you hear these words. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ and align yourself with him. For those of you who are aligned with Jesus, for those of you who have trusted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of you who are resting in him, for those of you who are overwhelmed by joy when you think of all that you have in Christ, as we sang earlier, that he is ours and we are his. And simply this. Be a relentless witness. 
for God's glory, for your good, and for the well-being of those around you. For you never know who, through your witness, might say, I once was blind, but now I see. Father, would you help us to simply be faithful to you? Would you help us to adore your son in such a way that he truly is our everything? Lord, we know that we fall short, yet we know that you're not done with us. We know that we're growing increasingly. We understand that sanctification is progressive, but Lord, it's our prayer that you would help us to grow more quickly than we have in the past. We wanna love Jesus more and more and more. Would you impress upon our minds that it is your desire for us to be conformed into his likeness? Would we adore him to the extent that we can not but help speak the truth to those who we find in our midst? Lord, all of life is ultimately about you and for your glory. Forgive us when we think otherwise. Forgive us when we're prone to glorify ourselves and exalt ourselves. Remind us today and this week, Lord, that you have called us and that you have purchased us to simply be faithful to you. Would the outcome of our efforts not be the sole reason or the sole purpose for us to move forward? Whether we convert one, none, or million, Lord, would we simply and faithfully scatter the seed that overwhelms us and that overflows from our love for you? We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.